0: From 11FS, I'm Sam Mall, and this is Connection Interrupted. Connection Interrupted is a weekly show focusing on individuals across all walks of life whose plans and journeys were interrupted, disconnected, or rerouted. These are their stories told in their words of the obstacles they faced, the challenges they overcame, and the role technology played both as an instigator and as an instrument for positive growth and change in their lives. I'm going to start this interview with Kate O'Neill, the founder of K.O. Insights and an author of several books, by asking you to hit the pause button in just a minute. Now, that probably breaks every rule of podcasting. I guess you don't tell your listeners to hit pause when you've captured them already. But that said, you really need to. And here's why. Take a look at the show notes or Google and then take a look at the image of Kate O'Neill at K.O. Insights. You're going to see a picture of her. She's standing in front of a subway. She's leaning forward slightly, has a blue jacket on a scarf. And she is laughing and has an incredible smile on her face. Now, it's really important because the backstory to that is what's really important. Kate had just spent an entire day with the photographer taking the promo pictures for one of her new books just, just a few years back. Never met the guy before, but they had an instant spark They they connected. It was just natural. And now they've been married for a couple of years. They live in Manhattan together. Now, why am I telling you all that? Well, you're gonna to have to re-tap that pause button and push play in order to find out. But trust me, at the end of this, you'll be so thankful that's where I started. This, well, this is Kate's story. That aspect of it. So again, you know, we met in person at, you know, down down at Rise, uh, which is down in Flatiron in New York, for listeners who have no clue what we're talking about. Um, but uh, I've, I've followed Kate for a while now on Twitter, and it's been fun. Um, but there's some interesting things I didn't know about you. I didn't know that you wrote books, that you were an author. I know that now. And we're <laughs> going to talk about that. But your your career arc is a trip. I mean, it is. You couldn't plan what you do. Yeah. <laughs> I like how you describe yourself on Facebook. So I'm going to read this to you. Sure. Usually the, my first question is, how would you describe what you do? Uh-huh. So I'm going to I'm gonna feed back to you yeah, what you <laughs> have posted on yeah. Facebook because you don't remember. <laughs> no, and then no, I, no, I want no. you to comment on that real quick. All right? So here's how you describe yourself. A tech humanist, a keynote speaker, an author, a founder, and my favorite, a happy person. So let's start with tech humanist. Define yeah. what you mean by that.
1: Yeah. So I feel like uh, what's happening... Around technology and data in that whole space is more and more emphasis on automation and efficiency. And rightly so, there's a lot of sort of business drivers of that momentum. Uh, but what I'm most interested in, in is making sure that we're using the full power of technology, emerging technology and data to benefit humanity. And so my emphasis is really on meaningful human experiences. Uh, But in practice, I do a lot of consulting with business around digital transformation. I'm just always trying to keep the human in focus.
0: And when you say businesses you consult with, let's go ahead and, and pump you up a little bit. We're talking Coca Cola, McDonald's. <laughs> you, you've got some nice clients.
1: There have been some nice clients along the way. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, it's always tricky with NDAs to know which ones are okay to mention under which context. But but yeah, those are definitely some of the companies that I've had the opportunity to work with, uh, hospital companies, uh, retail companies, uh, all kind, actually across the spectrum really it's been really fun to um to be cross-discipline and cross-industry because it's definitely the case that uh what applies in one industry has relevance in another
0: yeah especially we're going to talk about retail a little bit um we're coming up on the christmas season we're in new york it is freaking cold oh my god (laughs) it's like I, i don't know what happened to new york um no snow though
1: well, we had snow a couple of days ago, but you know, it got gray. So Okay. Well, that's where I'm
0: wearing these kickass boots. Um which is way over the top. I look like the Punisher. Um I'm going to take a picture of these boots and put it out there. Um it's it's interesting you you grew up in Chicago, right?
1: Yeah. The Chicago South suburbs. I know people who actually live in the city of Chicago are always a little bit uh, like touchy about people claiming to be from Chicago when they're from the suburbs.
0: Oh my God! I I, I did a uh, an interview with the chief storyteller from Detroit. His name's Aaron Foley. It's a great job title, but we had a whole discussion on this. Right? I grew up on the South Side, outside the city limit. So we went back and forth of whether I was a true Detroiter or not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the yeah. Chicago too, huh? The, the uh, south suburb I grew up in is far enough south, it's about a half hour south of downtown Chicago. And it's just far enough south that when I went to undergrad in downtown Chicago, a lot of my colleagues, my sort of co Court there were making fun of me that I should have a southern accent. It was so far south. Oh, good God! Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's the south side of Chicago. So I, I liked it. Your dad was a army linguist. He was. How many languages?
1: Uh, well, his primary focus was on Arabic. So he oh, did. Really? Yeah, he did military intelligence in Arabic, uh, but that was before he went into sales. He was in sales management most of my life.
0: Okay, so but that's actually cool. So you had a love of language. Oh my God! I watched a couple of videos on you so we're gonna have some fun we're not even gonna get out of high school probably (laughs) at 17 you did your first startup you helped found a youth theater company that's right get the hell out of here okay what was the name of the theater company
1: well i I had written and directed a play and uh, called what it was called what good is a broken rubber band wow and uh it was through a youth service organization called aunt martha's in my uh, hometown and yeah, and, and uh, there was some f- kerfuffle over sponsorship dollars, and so I went ahead and with a colleague we formed our own nonprofit to, uh, to set up a youth services arts organization through. And, uh, yeah, so that was, was The name early example of, oh, like, you it. put an obstacle in front of me, I'm going to find a way around it.
0: <laughs> okay, you were a hipster way before there ever was hipsters, because the <laughs> name of that is so cool. When was this? This early 90s?
1: Oh, that was, yeah, so that's going to date me, I guess. Ah, but, right. uh, yeah, the late 80s, early
0: 90s. Okay, Aunt Martha's Theater, I love that. You also described yourself as a mathlete.
1: Yeah, I in was, high in high so school. So you're a math geek? Yeah, definitely. Big math geek. So language and math, you know, they're they're very related in the brain, as it turns out.
0: And and also, you played, you said something like 10 instruments? <laughs> you're like that. the Prince of South <laughs> Chicago? What Which instruments?
1: This is so boring for I, your no, listeners. No, no, no. <laughs>
0: they have to get a concept of who you are as a person.
1: Uh, yeah, so clarinet was my primary instrument, but I became okay, obsessed with experimenting with all the different instruments I could. So... Uh, this is kind of a theme of my life is like, I always want to know more. I always want to try out. I wanted to learn all the languages. I wanted to learn all the instruments. It's just sort of a fascination of mine.
0: And and you, you talked about the languages. So I think you helped your sister out with German doing flashcards right. and you learned more than her. Yeah, <laughs> you know, bless you. I, you know, I do not have a talent for languages. No, no. Have
1: you, what, you've studied a few and yeah, just, not just picked them up.
0: Uh, a little French, you know, I took like I don't know. Four years of French. Yeah, can enough.
1: You, can that, you order beer or wine? Yeah, <laughs>
0: enough that like when we go to France, they they I get treated well because I try oh, and i decent. Nice. Yeah, you know, uh, my wife just uses her southern accent and they think she's a trip because she tries <laughs> to speak. it. But yeah, the other languages I'm just horrible at. So how many how many do you think you can speak?
1: Well, I I would say that the sort of official count would be somewhere in between like four and oh, 10, depending okay. on what level of fluency we're really being honest about.
0: <laughs> so 10 instruments, 10 languages. <laughs> yeah. You guys can see we have an overachiever on the it's podcast. It's just like a
1: dabbler. I think that's more the thing. Is I like that. that. Yeah, like I, I'm, I'm just continually curious and I always want to learn something about something.
0: You know, we were just talking about the the interview we just posted, which was Dr. Sue Black, mm-hmm. and she kind of described herself that same way, oh, right? yeah. Continually curious. I love that.
1: Yeah, it's it's just a it's like a lifelong fascination with like, well, what else is there?
0: It, you know, when we live in a day and age where you can do, it's it's like the Renaissance period, right? I'm reading the book on uh, Leonardo da Vinci.
1: Oh man, um, what yeah, it's an a interesting heck of a read. Person.
0: Yeah, and it's the same way, right? He had infinite curiosity. He just oh, yeah. anything that peaked in ADD. <laughs> Um, But I think we live in an age where you can do that.
1: Yeah, it's really, really fascinating to me that, you know, there is this sort of trade-off with the internet and with sort of Wikipedia and Google and everything, that, that you get the opportunity to surround yourself with so much knowledge, so much information. Um, but of course, there's the, what comes with it is the need to temper your time and attention and the need to sort out what is legit from what isn't. And, you know, all these different skills that, you know, people prior to the Internet age didn't necessarily have to have the same way that we do.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have so much information available to us that we don't use, right? We, we see the, the surface layer on a story. And literally, it doesn't take but five minutes to dig a little bit deeper to check sources right to see who you're retweeting or 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 commenting on
1: yeah or at least click on the link before you share the link (laughs) because the headline is intriguing yeah that might be nice you know so
0: you're not promoting some neo-nazi
1: yeah uh, but i think that's what's so fascinating to me about the age we're in and the age we're entering too as we think about automation and ai and all of the augmentation of human capability and that's what brings us back to that tech humanist idea is that i think you know the more optimistic interpretation of what could be coming for us is that we have a more full ability to become more realize more of our potential as humans
0: and and the, the, between the two of us we're we're somewhat around the same age i'm not saying anything about age <laughs> we're kind of in that neighborhood because you remember when the web came out and i remember when the web came out and the impact it had on, on the course of our life right so we're but but unlike my kids who Their entire life, the the smartphone has always been around. The web has always been there. And that's what I'm curious about, is what are they going to be like as adults? Right. I I don't have an answer.
1: No, I don't have an answer either. I think that's what's so fascinating, too, is is that, uh, you know, we are this transition generation. And a lot of us are responsible for, you know, laying in place the sort of the codified understanding of what the relationship between human and machine looks like. And a lot of the algorithms and a lot of the behaviors and a lot of the, you know, sort of processes at work and rules and everything are going to be built around what we think they should be. And the generation that follows us are doing some of that too, because let's be real, I mean, the people, the generation after us is already in the workforce and is in management and is in right. leadership. But it's, it's still important that we all have this very... Um, Uh, human-centric, future-minded approach to how we're building those sets of rules and and the sets of processes that govern how we use machines and how machines uh, support us because it's just, it's so possible for it to go so wrong.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, and I think what we typically do, and this isn't new to this day and age, right, this is throughout history, is that idea of when the new technology comes about, we try to take the way things have always been and just lift them into the new technology, right? right? You think about media. Yeah. And that that's always a great example. Sure. Or the record business, right? We just took newspapers and we put them online. Yeah. And we went, yes, yeah, we've just got it.
1: Digitize that business model. <laughs>
0: yeah, that didn't work very well, <laughs> by the way. But, in, but we saw those industries implode, right? Yeah. And, and we're continuing to see that across multiple industries, which, the, again, we'll get to retail. But I find that... I find that fascinating. That's why I'm very curious about what it's gonna be like for my kids. Yeah. And and my grandchild, right? What is what what the heck is life going to be like for them?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so uh one of the the themes that I explore in my keynotes is uh, humanity at scale. It's just the idea that we, we think a lot about scaling businesses, and we think a lot about scaling the um, institutions and organizations that, that we are a part of, or that support us in some way. But I don't think that we think very often about what it means to scale ourselves, and on what it looks like when we're supported uh, as well as we can be by automation and by machines that, that can let us achieve more of what we're capable of achieving.
0: I think if you want to think about scaling ourselves, people should pull up your LinkedIn profile because, oh, my God, we're going to run through some of these (laughs) jobs. okay? Um, But but that is an excellent example. Right. Jumping from industry to industry to industry. So you went to University of Chicago.
1: University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm, Ooh, sorry, I'm always everyone. trying to make oh sure God. to make that distinction because it really is a big distinction.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me. Yeah. For our for <laughs> listeners in Chicago, they'd be like, oh my God, I got that wrong.
1: Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, it's just such a, a state school versus private school, you know, kind of foundational thing. And I'm not at all embarrassed about, you know, having gone to a state school. I think I'm, I'm so proud of the fact that, uh, there are these great inner city, you know, uh, locally focused universities. I was on the board of one in Nashville, uh, for TSU It's very similar kind of school serving a lot of the local community. And it, it really makes me feel good to think that that gives local kids a chance to, to actually get a college education.
0: Well, in another industry that's going to be completely disintermediated, what's the word I want to use? Disrupted, imploded. Right. I, I mean, we're going to see that and we're seeing it happen now. Yeah. Um, I, I like one of the things you did, though. You launched the first departmental website.
1: I did. I built it. I got curious. I saw, um, <laughs> Imagine I saw that. the visual <laughs> web. And I mean, you remember we were just yeah. talking about this when you, when you first saw a visual website, or a graphical website, right? Like when I saw, of course, I was using the internet, I was using email, and I was using you know, Finger and Telnet and all those kinds of things. If you're old enough, you remember. Um, and I'd seen links, which was that first web browser, but it was all link-based, text-based. And when I saw Mosaic for the first time, and it was a graphical web browser, and I thought, man, this changes everything. I was just, it was one of very few moments in my life when I can truly say that I kind of saw the future. I got so excited and I, I wanted to know how to, how to do it, how to build what was being built to create those visual pages. So I learned how to, um, I got, I got a, a an account for the language laboratory, which w- I was the head of at the time, and I built a website. I just figured it out. I got a, an account in an VI editor. Oh, All wow. the Unix geeks out there will be like, VI. <laughs> in VI, I, I built the, the website for um, for the language laboratory, and it was at the time, it was ninety four. And it was at a time when you could really keep track of the websites that were coming online every day manually. You know, these websites were being built like what's new and what's cool out there. And people were like making these lists by hand of what was being built. So, uh, yeah, that led to one thing led to another. And I ended up uh, getting recruited by Toshiba to come back out and build an intranet for them. And I didn't know how to do that, but nobody else did either. So
0: And so think about timing and think about being curious. You moved to San Jose, uh-huh. right? So you moved think about timing right we're talking about mid 90s
1: yeah 96
0: you're getting into the to to the web and in being able to build these sites you're going to work for Toshiba that's like moving to Florence or <laughs> you know what I mean and I don't know what year that would have been but but you, you were there at the height right yeah. I mean when this kicked off when Silicon Valley really started to explode
1: it really it really hadn't been too much on my radar uh, you know I hadn't been thinking too much about going to silicon valley or working in technology and then this opportunity came to me and uh i just remember it 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 was interesting to me the idea of leaving chicago and going and working somewhere else and living somewhere else because i thought i'll spend my life in chicago that was kind of my feeling at the time but i should live somewhere else and then this opportunity came my way and i was like well california well sure (laughs) i want to i want to live there
0: think about this though put put yourself in you know your family and everyone around you the idea back then of, yeah, I'm going to leave Chicago to go to San Jose, mm-hmm. that was madness then. Now it's like, oh my God, the Holy Grail. But back then, it was a step into the unknown.
1: I remember my parents being proud. I remember it was a very nice moment that my uh, my dad, who uh, later passed, uh, but he t- was telling some friends about how proud he was of this opportunity that I had. And it was a really great moment
0: that I can remember between us. Well, so, so you go to Toshiba, you help them build out their first um, forays into the internet, right? Yeah. And, um, and, and several other companies in the valley, but one of them is interesting that you landed at, or if I remember it's was around 2000, this little company called Netflix, which was founded in 97, yeah, I 97, believe. Yeah,
1: 97, 98 ish, somewhere in there. And I landed there in 99. So, I so had, they're
0: still mailing uh, yeah, DVDs. Then, yeah, right? they
1: were. Uh, oh so it was really, really kind of funny. I had bought a DVD player and in the DVD player, they had one of those inserts that, you know, was was Netflix's branded insert about their program. And so I signed up for the program and I just remember thinking, and it was at that time, very few people remember this, but Netflix was doing basically a la carte DVD rental, not the subscription program at that time. But it was, you know, pay six or seven bucks and they'll send you a DVD and it has a late a, a deadline you have to send back and there's late fees and all that. And they figured out the subscription model right around the time that I went to work for them. And it was because of the subscription model that I got excited and I sent my resume to somebody and I was just like, find me a thing I can do. I just, I know you guys have solved something and I want to be part of it. And uh, so they found me a thing <laughs> and it was uh, being their content manager. I came in, I had a team of six content producers and uh, it was, it was a, a role that uh, was very data structure intensive. Um, we, we had a, a big responsibility for filling out and maintaining the metadata associated with all the content on the website. But it was also, I got a chance to work a lot with the DBAs and figure out, structural relationships of things like uh, genres to each other and we got to solve problems like you know romantic comedies should they be under romance or should they be under comedy or should they be both and how do you sort of structure that in the database and how do you think about that information architecturally but nobody was using terms like information architecture right. quite good at that time as not as much anyway so it, it was a fun exploratory innovative time and it was it was really cool to be able to help shape some of the the um, Uh, sort of standards, I think, that have have now come into place for e-commerce, like serving up dynamically recommended content for people, like, hey, you know... personalized, right? Yeah, personalized.
0: This is Sam Maul. Yeah. And this is, you know, based on his behavior. Yeah. Because by the way, I live in, I'm a consultant, so I live (laughs) off my phone and computer watching content, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's things like, uh, here's a list of buddy movies and, you know, cop buddy movies. And we would populate that with how many, however many cop-buddy movies we could, but we had built it so that there was an algorithm that would say, OK, we'll take into consideration not only the inventory of these movies, but also your personal ratings history and your preferences. We'll also take into consideration revenue-sharing deals we might have with studios and other kind of business model-related uh, factors. So it was a really complex algorithm, and that was pretty new at that time. So it was exciting to be part of that sort of cutting edge work.
0: Well, when I, when I, and again, when I look at all the different places you live, because I'm laughing because you said you'd never <laughs> thought you'd leave Chicago, right? I'm going to run through <laughs> a list people. So you're born and raised in Chicago, moved out to San Jose, Dusseldorf. I don't know when you moved there, but we'll ask yeah. Portland, Nashville, and now New York City. Okay. Let, let's jump to Dusseldorf. When was that?
1: It was during college. Yeah. So you just in, studied abroad? Yeah. It was In the summer, I did an internship in Dusseldorf. I love Dusseldorf, It was by a great place to be. Oh, uh, I love
0: Dusseldorf. All right. How did you go? How did you? When, when, when did you go to Portland?
1: Uh, that was right after, actually during Netflix. I bought a house in Portland. So this is the thing. At the time in Silicon Valley, no one can afford to buy houses in Silicon Valley. At the
0: Valley. time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Been out there exactly. lately?
1: Exactly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working at Netflix and I want to buy a house. And I cannot afford anything in the Bay Area, so like almost everyone else I knew who was at this stage of life, I bought a house that was within an hour flight away from San Jose and kept my rent-controlled apartment in San Jose.
0: Pre-hipster, <laughs> before hipster was a term. <laughs> Again, cutting edge. So why Nashville? Of all, I'm just I don't Song get that writing. move. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about this. All right, back in high school, uh, she wrote music. Um, We talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I was always
1: writing poetry and lyrics. And uh, my parents tell me about um, when I was like six years old, they found me in the family room on the typewriter. I had been typing out the lyrics to um, a Bob Seger song against the wind. (laughs) And I had typed them all out so that nothing I could study them. Nothing wrong with them. Bob Seeger,
0: everybody. I'm from Detroit, so nothing wrong with Bob Seger. But go ahead.
1: Well, it was just uh, that was like even at that time, I guess I understood that the way to become a writer was to study the writing that you admired. So I, it, it for me, to today, you would just go and you'd Google, you know, against the wind lyrics. But I, at the time, I had to listen to the song over and over again and type the lyrics out so that I could see them written in front of me structurally and understand how that had been done.
0: That's how we listened to, you know, I had the eight track. I mm-hmm. had the cassettes. That's, Back in the day, reverse, right. you know, <laughs> Ford stop, reverse. <laughs> Hope you yeah. didn't upload the tape. So
1: I was always fascinated with, with um, poetry, lyrics, and writing of all kinds. And then uh, years went by and I met my late husband and he had been a working musician and artist in the Bay Area. And uh, he and I started writing together. And we were writing in, uh, when, we, when I lived in San Jose... I was you know, working in technology, and we were writing together in the evenings and weekends, and then we would do these uh, pitch nights where uh, publishers and producers from LA would come into the Bay Area, and we would pitch, along with a bunch of other songwriters, songs for inclusion in movies or to be recorded by different artists and so on. So we did that a lot, and we did that while we were living in California, did it while we were in Portland, Chicago, and then when we were in Chicago, it was finally... Uh, the decision to should we move to LA or to Nashville to pursue songwriting? And uh, we heard from someone who had just recently moved from LA to Nashville what we wanted to do, which was be outside songwriters, you know, be ma- songwriters who got our material picked up by other artists. That was something you do in Nashville, not in LA. So we moved to Nashville.
0: You know, this whole life theme with you, <laughs> um, you know, about the human centered, right. the human component of all this, and you see that. And I, and I want to take a little segue, if we can, maybe five minutes. The importance of the liberal arts or because you talk about poetry. Who's your favorite poet?
1: Oh, that's tough. That's a tough I know, one. I know. Yeah. I'm so moved by Robert Frost and his simple language. That's, that's good. Yeah.
0: I, yeah. You can't go wrong. Yeah. Um, but the idea you love music, you love languages, you love. Um, and, and folks, you don't know this. Um, uh, Kate's got a busted hand because she got hit by a car. It's the most New York story ever. So one hand is totally wrapped up and she just has surgery on it. So she's trying to hold a mic, drink coffee, set it down. <laughs> and we're at a WeWork. So we're in these weird hipster chairs where you can't, <laughs> where if you have you a really mic. set the scene. I know. You really got to <laughs> lean over to talk. It's important to set the scene. But the importance of liberal arts, right? Um, because, you know, we do have this movement of just let me go out and learn how to code. Right. And we see that over and over again. There's so many organizations will just teach you how to code. And we have startup boot camps and code boot camps. And what I'm afraid of is the loss of the liberal arts side. Right. The stuff that everyone seems to hate when they go to college. But shouldn't because there's importance in that. There's importance in literature. There's importance in art. There's an importance in music. Don't you think?
1: Of course. I mean, it's been all my life. So much of the nuance of what I've been passionate about has been artistic and creative. But you know, I also was never intimidated by computers, and I have to credit my parents because they made sure that we had, you know, like Texas Instruments computers and you know these uh, uh, early model computers that hooked up to your TV, and you would type basic commands into them. And so it was never it was never intimidating. I was always very curious about how computers fit into the overall landscape of, of what our lives looked like. And so I got to uh, in grade school, I threw an uh, Pupil enrichment program. It was like a gifted program, I guess. Uh, I got to participate in a coding exercise, and I programmed a game called (laughs) Doggy. It was like a a sprite game. You would, with the arrow keys on the keyboard, move this leash back and forth, and you would try to collar this little sprite doggy that would move across the screen. And uh, that won first place in a statewide programming competition. So, you know, I just think it's it's so important to me that I never thought programming was beyond my ability. I never thought languages were beyond my ability. I never thought music was beyond my ability. It was all just a matter of like exploring it and then figuring out which one do I want to pursue at any given moment.
0: So this is my shout out to anybody involved or in politics or, you know, you, you you are involved in politics and how you vote and, and everything else. I'm not telling you parties to vote for. What I'm saying is the, the concept of education, um, of, of, of looking forward. So obviously coding is massive, right? Um, um, studying AI, machine learning is massive. But without the human element, without the arts, we can't afford to cut funding for the arts. I'm, I'm actually going to go do an interview with my niece and her boyfriend tonight who both moved up from south georgia to do dance and teach and i do too right in harlem and then tomorrow i'm interviewing the chief of staff for ibm watson who teaches girls who gets teaches girls how to dance in harlem but with the intent to get them into stem studies
1: oh that's fantastic I know,
0: devica the is going to be an, another interview so my whole <laughs> it seems like this whole trip to new york is around <laughs> the arts of all things i should go see a show but uh, i do want to throw that out and, and you see that thread throughout your entire life history i have this mind map i did of Kate and she took a picture of it I'm it's on my notebook. With it. Don't you love that? You need to frame that and put it on your wall.
1: I'm thrilled. But you
0: see that in everything you do. So this move to Nashville from San Jose was wrapped around music, but you ran you started a company, Metamarketer. Marketer. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it was funny that I moved to Nashville and the the aim was to really focus on songwriting and and not as much stop working around technology, but have that become sort of a secondary thing, a way to pay the bills. And what actually happened was within a week of moving to Nashville, I got recruited by HCA, Hospital Corporation of America, to come and build their intranet for them. (laughs) So it all started again. And uh, it was great. It was a great sort of intro into Nashville. As it turns out, HCA is, you know, one of the larger employers in town. It was a great way to build a network there. And within a couple of years, I found myself at the center of helping to build a digital community in Nashville, and so I built a company there, and um, it was an analytics uh, agency, uh, digital strategy agency, and meta marketer. We worked with uh, companies like Adobe, Symantec, and a bunch of other big companies, as well as like local favorites like the Grand Ole Opry and things like that. So it was a fantastic experience. And Wonderful she's
0: being uh, she's she's not being prideful whatsoever. So I'll do it for you. Won all kind of awards for that recognition for it. Successful company. Um, you know, you were asked, you, you, you've been on, take take your pick um, when it comes to media interviewing you on the topic. So you're very successful at doing that. Um, and I, and I want to talk a little bit about about that company and how it led to what you're doing now, right? With yeah. KO Insights. But. Let's give Nashville a shout out. Wasn't it a great place to live?
1: It was a fantastic place. It still is a fantastic place. And I got, I I feel so incredibly lucky that I got to be there at the time that I was there. That I feel like I caught the wave as it was starting to build. And, you know, I, I feel like I got to be part of helping shape its future in some tiny fractional way by being... Uh, so passionate about technology and, and um, what, what potential that held for the for the community.
0: Well, you're you're an ambassador for the space when you think about that. You know, you came from Silicon Valley, moving to Nashville and the work you're doing there, um, and the changes. Like we said, we've seen in society. So we can talk about the changes in the music industry that you were a witness to. Yeah. Right. I mean, good God, what was it like? So your little. One-minute synopsis of the music industry.
1: Well, the music industry in Nashville is uh, is an interesting thing because it's it's so songwriter-centric, uh, at least co- communally it is. So there's still very much this alliance with the creator side of of the world, and it, it takes it takes a little while for some of the changes that happen in the larger sort of macro industry to be felt in Nashville because it still operates the same way. You still have people who go and have their songwriting meetings, uh, you know, their, their uh, collaboration days with, with other writers. Like, uh, I have an appointment to go write with this much more famous songwriter today, and we're going to go churn out a song, and that's how that works. You know, you just, you get to have an opportunity, and maybe you'll sit for eight hours and not have any, any ideas, and then the last 15 minutes you write a song together. Um, but that's, that was how that always worked in that town and it still does, but the economics of the industry and all of that weren't necessarily being as clearly felt, I think, as early as, as they were felt in in other places where the industry was much more about sales, about, you know, record sales like LA. So anyway, that, that was a a fascinating thing. And, And one of the things that was interesting to me about, carrying over the music interests into the technology space in Nashville was, I came there as a songwriter and so I played songwriter nights. And the thing that I learned about uh, playing out as a songwriter to an audience of songwriters in Nashville is that they don't come up to you afterwards and say, hey, I liked your song. They come up and say, hey, I liked your song. We should write together sometime. There's this very rich spirit of collaboration. And co-writing is, a, is so deep, deeply entrenched in Nashville's musical industry. Um, so that became sort of a foundational thing that carried over into the entrepreneurship scene too. You got to see all these companies that were doing digital startups sitting and having coffee with each other, You know, the founders sitting and having coffee with each other, and kind of going like, well, we have an API. You have an API. Maybe we could make this make sense together. And it was fascinating to watch that carry over in ways that I never saw happening quite as much in any other market.
0: Well, you know, the typically throughout my career, the way that IT and, and and large companies have operated is security guards and badges and everything else to get into the damn building. And that idea of we're in a we work right now, right? It's a shared environment. I was literally doing some prep for this interview and the table behind me, I had um, a guy a little bit younger than me, probably in his mid-40s, talking to a kid usually in his 20s kid in his 20s was explaining what tokens were and talking about cryptocurrency and ICOs and walking them through it and literally through that introduction they they established a couple of meetings right um you know I know this guy you know this guy great we should do this you want to do dinner tonight yes and I was laughing because that never happens <laughs> by the way for the most part in the largest scale industries right. and that's that change that we're seeing
1: yeah yeah, I do think that that change has become more widespread, and it is it is so uh, fun and exciting to see happening in more communities, in more markets, in more industries. But I, I feel like I got to see it happening in a really shaping kind of way in Nashville, and it was really fun to be there. So, yeah, so that was a, a great time.
0: So what prompted, you left Nashville, what, around 2014?
1: 2015. 2015,
0: what prompted the move to New York? So I'd That's been coming move here. a move, by the way, by the way. Yeah, it, was a, way. it was
1: a big move. Um, I'd been coming here... Uh, a couple times a year, while I, while I was at Metamarketer, I had some clients here. And uh, and then after, when I decided to transition away from Metamarketer and focus more on speaking and writing and consulting, um, just solo, I decided uh, I, I had a, a client here that I was coming and meeting. And I had a, a board I was serving on here that met quarterly. Uh, and there were some other some other reasons why I was coming up for speaking gigs and things like that. And so it turned out I was coming here about six or seven times a year. And it just cut, cut accelerating. And I felt like at one point I made the joke that I'm the only person who ever saved money by moving to New York because I was just <laughs> traveling up here so much.
0: <laughs> I think you'd learn your lesson from San Jose buying a place in Portland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You are the only person I've ever met. That has said that, I mean, yeah. I mean, you live in Manhattan, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Very close to where we are, actually. Yeah, so it is definitely not cheap. um, But it's so, the opportunity is so rich. And I just found that every time I was visiting here, I was meeting these phenomenally interesting people. And all the opportunity that came up during discussions with them was just rich. And I never felt like there was a chance to explore it as fully when I flew back to Nashville. And suddenly, it was this way that for as much as we think we're a a digitized culture and that work is remote, People have this very sort of pedestrian and, and um, localized view of, of work that or of collaborations and they wanna see each other. They wanna be face to face. I mean, you and I are sitting here face to face and most of the podcast interviews I've ever done have not been face to face.
0: Well the best ones are face to face. Well that's it's right? I mean, a great distinguisher. Well it is. I mean, you know, we, we we talk about, you know, being able to do meetings via Google Hangouts or WebEx and everything else and, and usually those are disasters, by the way, as you know. Um, and then what I have found in doing podcasts is if I can't see the person, I pretty much won't do it. Right. If it's an interview over the phone, I don't do it. Worst case scenario, if I have to do it via Google Hangout and a WebEx, I'll do it so I can see their face. But it's still not the same. Yeah. You just don't get the interaction that you do and being in the same room and talking with someone and and, and, and seeing everything. True. Right. It just makes a, a difference. That human interaction.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, so I think that I think that changes the nature of collaboration too. And I, I think there's an, a huge opportunity for um, distributed collaborations. I mean, the internet and and Skype and all kinds of stuff like give us so much opportunity to do these widespread collaborations. But I think that we cannot kid ourselves into thinking that we don't want to be sort of face to face and and in physical presence with people. That's a that's a thing that's still going to to keep us going for a while.
0: Yeah, I don't care if we get holograms, you know, (laughs) uh, which we will. I mean, I know we're going to have those. It still won't be the same. It just won't. Um. We'll see how good it gets.
1: Yeah, <laughs> be, yeah, I can't it'll wait be to interesting see. to see how good it gets. And certainly, if it if it you know gets to the point where it feels the same, then I don't see what the meaningful distinction is. And that that uh, you know, I talk in my work about the difference between the shape and nature of experience. And uh, if if the shape is similar enough to the nature, then there's really no need to make that distinction, right? Like, so if if the nature of the experience is that you want to have this kind of connected face-to-face nuanced experience of like being able to read each other's body language and facial expressions, well, if the, the technology provides a shaped experience that's like, oh, hey, we actually feel as if we're in the same room. I can see your face, I can see your reactions, or at least I can get some sort of Maybe there's some sort of data feedback that's going to give me the equivalent indication that will allow me to feel as meaningfully connected as I do in person. That's what we have to look for. Not, it, it need not be maybe face-to-face, but it's going to have to create that same sense of connection.
0: So you come to New York, you start KO Insights, nice name. Thanks. Yeah. You know, initially when you had that, I'm like, oh, what is KO Insight? I wonder where she, oh yeah, Kate O'Neill. <laughs> By the way, it took well, me a little while to put that together. I'm and not it's fast. It's funny
1: because, you know, so when I had and that was the agency in Nashville, I found a lot of the time uh, I got clients that um, uh, I sold them on the work of the company, and it was truly the work of the company. Um, but I never felt like I could step, step away or step aside and actually be the CEO and run the company rather than run the accounts. And uh, one of the things that was important to me in stepping away from running uh, a, an agency like that was to own the fact that the relationship was between me and the, the client. And so I wanted to make sure my name was somehow represented in the name. Uh, my, my, my personal name was, was represented in the company name because it felt more honest. I, like, I'm not going to be running a company that's like me with 10 layers between me and the client. That's just, I, I don't know how to do that. Uh, it's not that I don't know. I think it just doesn't work for me. I want the personal connection, and they do too,
0: I think. So when we talk about marketing, because, again, your experience in this space, you've, you've touched on so many different industries, but you had a great quote. In, in one of the videos I watched when you were talking, and you said that relevance is a form of respect. I love, I love the lines that'll fit on Twitter,
1: <laughs> by, by the way.
0: you know, for people that think like that way. What do you mean by that? Relevance is a form of respect.
1: So this was an, uh, a premise that came about during my work uh, years ago around meaningful marketing. And it was this idea that you know, if you're using data to uh, behavioral data insights about customers to shape the experiences that you're serving up for them, then what you're actually doing is showing them relevance. And uh, you're giving people more relevant content. You're tailoring the, the experience that they have. You're not bothering them with you know, stuff that isn't pertinent to their interests. And that's a form of respect. It's saying, hey, I see who you are. I see what your interest is. And I'm laying this stuff in front of you because I can tell that it's going to make a more frictionless path from where you are to where you're trying to be. Now, the flip side of that is in more recent years, I've started uh, adding a caveat, but so is discretion. <laughs> oh, that's a, but that's a good one, right?
0: So is context, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, sure. when you're doing
1: this. Right. So it is still important, I think, that if we're using consumer data, if we're using people's data to create experiences for them, and we should be because that is, that's the opportunity we have, that we create more relevant experiences for them, more meaningful experiences for them and experiences that are going to align with what that person is in the world trying to achieve and what the business or entity is in the world trying to achieve. That's perfect. That's exactly what we should be doing. But we also need to be conscientious about the fact that that data that we use is the person's human data and that we need to be respectful of that data and use it with discretion and use it with care.
0: Who does it well Hmm. without naming a client or name a client without saying they're a client?
1: Uh, you know, it's a good question. I don't have a very good answer. Do you um, think
0: we're there yet? No. Either do I. Good. No. I'm so glad you said that because yeah. I seriously don't think we're there yet.
1: No, I, I, I think there's a lot of bad examples, and I, I guess I tend to focus more on those. And it's not. <laughs> I love to be a, a more optimistic person, but uh, I just don't see. I don't see very many examples of companies that have really. Seem to put the thought into truly modeling what the customer, what the the human being that's on the other side of the the interaction is trying to accomplish, and how to make uh, the relationship with them as it relates to the brand more meaningful. That that feels like it's it's a it's an ideal, and it's a it's a lovely ideal, but it isn't necessarily happening. And and for there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, But I think, and I think that digital transformation is one of the sort of buzzwordy things that gets in the way because uh, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of transition to make. There's a lot of data to keep track of. There's a lot of of technologies to upgrade. There's a lot of processes to carry over and workflow to to upgrade. And like you mentioned earlier, a lot of what we tend to do, a lot of what we see in these companies is whatever worked before, we're just gonna digitize that. (laughs) We're gonna automate that.
0: You know, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'll give you a few examples I've seen that I do like. I'll look at uh, Zappos back in the day, yeah. right? But even with Zappos, that's more how their employees are working with you, right? How their call center works, the freedom that they have. It's not necessarily that digitized marketing Marketing for me. I look at um, Trunk Club. Yeah. I've, I've used them in the past. I've enjoyed that. But that's actually a relationship with the designer that I've had, right, mm-hmm. that I've enjoyed. Uh, Warby Parker had fun with them, right? I like the way they package, the way they send it to me, the messaging layers that they do, but it's not personalized, right? Yet. I mean, I don't get, I'm I'm still going out and putting my face in that site and getting the glasses and all that. So it's not to that layer yet.
1: So I think at the end of the day, that's the question is what is meaningful to you, right? Like which, which of those experiences or any of the other experiences that you're having are meaningful. And that's the question I would just ask everyone is, you know, there's, every company has to uh, determine what's going to be the driver of success for them and what, what makes their business purposeful and why are they in business in the first place and then how do they bring it to a level of scale that means success but they also have to recognize that the people on the other side of that transaction have their objectives of getting through the day and and they're trying to achieve things in the world and the ways in which their objectives overlap with the objectives of the company are where there are the true opportunities to create moments of meaning and moments of, of memorable experiences. That's where it really pays to think about dimensionalizing the brand and dimensionalizing the opportunities uh, in in really um, rich ways.
0: I know I've told my clients this a couple of times As I am a consultant. oh God, I'm a consultant. <laughs> I've been a consultant now for a while. And I've kind of given that message back, right? I said, one of your best... Places to start to figure out where you can impact your customers is your complaints department, right? Is where people, where, where the brand has fallen over, right? Or where the relationship took a hit, right? And where you're seeing those and how can you personalize those? We do that at 11FS with a lot of the consulting do with banks where, you know, they'll come to us and say, how do we digitize these processes? And we always come back and say, you're starting at the wrong place. Why aren't you talking with your customers? Not about what if we launch this product, but what do you actually use these for, right. right? I mean, <laughs> what are you trying to do? Yeah, that's great that we're giving you a statement. Do you really care? <laughs> yeah. Other than the compliance side of it, what are you using it for? What can we do to solve what you really need? You know, and right. and we get a lot of blank stares, by the way. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> not from the customers, from the, the uh-oh. bankers. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, the customers are fine. They'll sit there all day and tell you. But I, I find that side of it um, uh, fascinating. One of the other things you do is you write. You've had, you had three books out on Amazon. I'm very impressed by that. You gave me one. I'm so happy. You gave me Pixels in Place. That's your latest book. But prior to that, you actually wrote one, Lessons Up from Netflix, yeah, that, that influenced yeah. you. I'm going to go buy it was that. It's just a
1: really short ebook. But uh, yeah, I had written a, a series of articles about it and I turned it into a really quick ebook. It's out there. Um, it's just a bunch of quick observations about what I saw right at Netflix.
0: And that's a, but that's again, that's the new age, right? That you can write an ebook and get it out there and published without, um, and, and be on Amazon for folks to go and find. So I have a link to it. Yeah. We'll see if we can uptick the sales for that. Um, let's skip the second book, Pixels in Place, the one year latest. What's that about?
1: So this is uh, the subtitle is Connecting Human Experience Across Physical and Digital Spaces. So it's all about the emerging technologies that are making. Um, physical and digital experiences kind of overlap with each other. So, you know, you go into a retail store and you get a push notification about sales in the store. Um, Or there are things like, and retail is a big focus area within the book, um, things like smart mirrors, you know, like you're trying on a, a jacket in a store and there's actually augmented technologies to show you a virtual version of you wearing a different color of that jacket or a different size or something like that. Um, some very interesting stuff going on, but also some kind of manipulative stuff. So I talk a little bit about things like, um, you know, the ability to read micro expressions in those smart mirrors and the ability of the mirror to then say things like, you look great if in case you're showing any doubt and try to upsell you on on uh, accessories to go with your jacket. Uh, so it's just some, some uh, balance of... Data privacy concerns and some considerations, mostly geared at experienced designers of various kinds. So, executives, strategists, anyone who's designing experiences for humans, really.
0: So, here's the loaded question All right. What do you see as the future of retail when it comes to digital and its impact? Is it real? You know, I'm, we're constantly reading, depends which article you read. Um, retail's dead, retail's not. Um, malls are dead, malls aren't. Um, you know, uh, Walmart and Amazon are going to rule the world nah you we're we're overblowing this what would you say if you look out 5 years good luck
1: it's a way. mix yeah. it's all, it's it's not any one thing and i think that's what we're really seeing is that the the shape of it is that we still have i mean there's got to be physical space people enjoy the experience of physical browsing and and being in a physical store that's that's one function of shopping that's one function that retail serves is like this escapist um, activity right so there's still that but there's also the um, the convenience factor and of course Amazon has really beaten almost everyone to the punch on that and you know you, <laughs> you just yeah, yeah you figure you know that prime is I always say Amazon prime is one of the most brilliant products ever invented agree <laughs> so you know the fact that they understood the uh, the barriers of their customers well enough to know that shipping was going to be the the big driver and that it created a loyalty and a sense of uh, frictionless uh, shopping is just brilliant. Uh, so, so that is going to continue, uh, and Amazon has very little barrier in its way to just being continuing to be the top retailer. Um, you but know, right it, before we, the right before ahead, you ahead. walked in, mm-hmm.
0: um, news was released that Target bought Ship. So, um, you know, we already know the. The advantage Walmart had with their logistics and and what they've done in the acquisition of Jet, and and Walmart has definitely made some noise. Yes. Um, But it's a different, to some degree, a different consumer base than what you're seeing on Amazon, right? Um, Target in in a slightly different niche, if you will, of type of consumer. Right. Um, so it's exactly what you just said yeah. right, on the shipping side. But then
1: there's also this, and I, I talk about it a little bit in Pixels in Place, there's also these experiential retail kinds of things like pop-up stores. And you see this a lot if you spend time in New York. Other cities do it too, but you, you get it a lot here in London and, and other um, bigger cities around the world where you get sort of conceptual stores and experiential branded environments. And AR is going to play a really big role in that. Uh, You're going to have the opportunity to use um, your phone or a a tablet that you pick up as you go into the, the space. And it'll give you the opportunity to to see variations on the product you're interacting with or to, uh, if you've been to like Samsung's virtual space uh, here in in Chelsea uh, or uh, meatpacking or wherever it is, everybody argues about what neighborhoods are which around here. (laughs) I get
0: corrected constantly
1: because I'm like, I take
0: pictures. Uh, Tanaya Michaels, who's listening right now, because I know you'll be listening. She corrects me every time. (laughs) A friend of mine (laughs) on Twitter. that's, That's actually not the neighborhood you're in, Sam. That's not Soho.
1: That was one of the funnier tweets about the um, the thwarted bombing incident in the Port Authority the other day was someone was like, you know, I love I love that New Yorkers are already arguing about what neighborhood it actually is. <laughs>
0: this is such a New York event. right? It was actually the I think it was the Daily Mail. Oh, what a rag. Um, who had pictures that you know are showing panicked New Yorkers leaving Port Authority? When you when you zoom in, there's all these very annoyed looking yeah. New Yorkers. <laughs> it's like, that's not panic. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> what, that's this irritation? It, it, welcome to New York, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so
1: I think I think retail is an interesting space. I think uh, financial uh, services are are definitely an interesting space to watch over the next few years. And, and I've done some work with. Uh, consulting shops around what the future of, of uh, retail banking looks like and how physical space gets used for bankers. You see a lot here in New York of um, bank space that is uh, given over to things like coffee shops or um, you know kind of experiential environments. So there's a lot of experimentation going on in that space right now. I think it's a, a really interesting space to watch.
0: So KO Insights, everyone, we're going to have links. We'll have links to all of the books. But I'd like to kind of wrap up with the second book you wrote. And there's a, there's a reason for that. The, the title of the book is Surviving Death. You went through a span of your time in your 30s where you lost both your husband and your father. Uh-huh. who we, we already talked about your father, who you were close to. Um, you know, when, right before the interview we were talking, I lost my dad um, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Right? He passed away. My mom passed away back around 91 from MS, complications wow. from up. So both parents now are gone, right? So that's the stage of life I'm at. But you went through losing both the spouse. Yeah, how how what what kind of time frame was it? Yeah,
1: so my dad died in two thousand five, and my husband died in twenty twelve. So seven years apart.
0: So that's that's uh, that's a kick in the gut. I don't know it another was. nice way to say yeah,
1: that. Yeah, no, it was definitely a kick in the gut, or teeth, or whatever. Yeah, whatever uh, ana- anatomical reference. Um, it was it was really tough. Um, but there's a lot that I talk about in that in the book uh, in surviving death um, about what. I think the subtitle is something like what grief taught me about joy and meaning and love or something like that. Um, and it was the truth that almost immediately after my husband died, um, one of the most rich experiences that I had. One of the one of the deepest feelings I had was a sense of gratitude. It was gratitude for all the people who had shown up at my house to help me. It was gratitude for all the time that he and I had had together. It was gratitude for, um, I mean, just so much. And one of the, even one of the things was uh, the fact that my dad had died first and I had uh, this sort of primer for how to experience grief. And it was hard, of course, to lose my dad. It was even harder to lose my husband. But in a way, I felt like I was grateful for the fact that life had given me this this chance to learn how to grieve through my dad's loss, and then I, before I had to face the loss of my husband. So there were some really profound life lessons for me in that whole experience.
0: What prompted you to write the book? Was-
1: I'd been doing a lot of of writing, blogging. Um, in the time around my dad's death, there were there were so many things that I found absurd about the experience. He died from cancer, my husband died from suicide, so two very different circumstances. Um, but the so the long, slow, grueling death uh, that my dad experienced and that the rest of us experienced alongside him um, was full of object lessons about family and about. Um, you know, life in general, like watching my dad struggle to let go and kind of knowing that he felt like he still had some unfinished business. So, uh, so learning about that. And then, and then years later um, with my husband's death uh, and I found him and and it was uh, just such a, such a amazingly difficult moment. Um, But so much came back to me over the coming, over the weeks that followed that was like, wow, I actually sort of know how to do this already because of what I learned from losing my dad. And I felt like there was something in that that felt like it needed to be shared. We talk a lot about the Kubler-Ross model of grief, uh, of of um, the five stages people talk about a lot, the bargaining and acceptance and denial, and, or it's denial first and all that. Um, but those, very few people realize, um, are based on dying, not on death. So it's actually... Someone who is chronically ill, who or, or who is terminally ill, uh, who faces those stages. That was what K- Elizabeth Kubler Ross's research was initially set up to study. Was so the
0: person himself, yeah, the person, not the people around? Right, the person right. him
1: or herself as they're facing their own death. So what I found was that in in losing two of the more formative people in my life there were all these other things that nobody talked about. Nobody ever talked about gratitude. Nobody ever talked about this sense, this deepened sense of meaning. And meaning's been a really important concept throughout my life, just in general. I mean, the fact that I was attracted to languages all my life, I think, is kind of a lens on meaning. And the fact that I want companies to create relationships with their customers and find the alignment of relevance with their customers, it's all about meaning. So I feel like that's that's been this really kind of recurring theme. And uh, when these two very important people to me died, I, I found that one of the things that it did for me was clarify meaning in very, very uh, strong ways. And that it became this kind of mission that I wanted to make sure that that I could help people recognize if they wanted to see this the opportunity that came with grief to see how much chance there was to, to feel deeper gratitude and sense more meaningful, profound things about life and go through the world kind of eyes open.
0: You know, it's It's interesting around death. I, like I said, both my parents have passed now and I've had some friends um, that I'm, I'm gonna be 51. And so I'm at that age, like my cousin I grew up with, exact same age, he died of an aneurysm about two years ago. Mm. Uh, so sudden, right? No clue yeah. that it was coming yeah. and just gone. And that's that's an odd feeling, right? I mean, it's just, how do you manage that? Because the next day the sun does come up. Yes. Which is...
1: And it feels totally wrong. <laughs> and yeah,
0: you're like, wait a minute, you should not be coming up. Right. The universe should have stopped. Right. But it doesn't. Right. And that's, you know, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, I think is... Uh, I don't have a good answer for that. I'm going to read the book. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'd, <laughs> I'd
1: love to hear your thoughts, especially now, especially in in this time for you. And So you've just come through that that whole the sun comes up and it doesn't feel like it should moment, right? Yeah, so
0: it is it is odd, right? Um, it was interesting, and we we, we talked about this earlier, uh, the interview with Dr. Sue Black. One of the things she talked about in her life, and everybody, if you haven't listened to that interview yet, go listen to it because it's outstanding. It was really great. But I like what she said. She goes, I've lived a pretty hard life. You know, at 25, she was living in a women's refuge center, three children, no husband, you know, barely a high school education. And by the way, now she has a doctorate in an OBE and she's met the queen and she's met everybody and she's ridiculously, yes, yeah, she is amazing. But she says, I lived a hard life, but I've also lived a happy life. And I love that part of it. And you describe, we're going full circle Yeah. on your yeah. Facebook page. <laughs> last thing you list is happy person.
1: I am. I am.
0: But is that by choice? Do you think?
1: I think it has to be. Yes, it will. Yeah. I mean, I I think you easily could choose, I think, to to see all the slings and arrows as, you know, kind of conspiring against you somehow. Um, But I don't think they do. And I think there's just, there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad. And it's kind of all what you, not just what you choose to focus on, but what you choose to take from all of it. So I feel like for me, there's been... Um, I mean, there's been fantastic opportunity. We've spent the better part of this hour talking about what great opportunities I've had in my life, and I'm incredibly grateful for those. I've also had some incredible tragedies, and I've I've really felt like what has happened to me through those is that I've become much more attuned to what matters and paying attention to the people around me and appreciating the good things and appreciating the opportunities that are, that are right now and not... I'm not taking that for granted so that that's incredibly meaningful to me and I'm very happy as a result
0: this show is crafted for you by the folks at 11fs we're building banks for the future find out more at 11fs.com if we hooked you with this episode be sure to leave us a review on iTunes every star helps today's episode was edited by Michael Bailey and produced by Laura Watkins Ollie Judge and myself I'm Sam Mall, and this has been Connection Interrupted. Thanks for listening.